Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is an incredible cartoonist, Slack's resident movie buff, and the fastest horse in the valley. A.T. Pratt is here. How's it going, pal? Yo, welcome back. Or are you sure it's not Mr. David Lynch himself in the recording booth? (laughs) It may very well be. You've got quite the outfit on in order to represent David. I respect the look. This is early David here. Uh, he used to wear a floppy hat. Uh, new David is sort of more streamlined. He wore uh, in the in the filming of of the the movie we will be discussing. He wore a uh, sort of a floppy fedora as well as not one, not two. Well, sometimes two. He would wear two <laughs> ties: one that he always wears, and then two that the chosen one for the day, and then. When filming, he wore three ties, so that is how many wow. I'm wearing for the recording. You sure are. I gotta say, you're pulling it off, man. I, I'm digging the look. Thank you. It, I'm inside, though, with with uh, heat on, so uh, I might shed the <laughs> David layers as we go. Uh, a sexy treat. Yep. <laughs> Stripping David. Uh, like I said in your intro, you're a huge movie buff. Uh, I'm a cinephile, and sort of my uh, it's unique personality that I like movies. And, uh, <laughs> not a lot of people have uh, accessed that sort of personality yet. I'm curious, sort of, where that came from for you, and when horror sort of entered the picture. Well, I've I've liked, uh, yeah, I've been a, I'm I'm just a, been a uh, uh, big fan of of sitting in front of the screen uh, ever <laughs> since I was a little boy. I would. Uh, uh, dance in front of the TV to uh, Elvis and singing in the rain. And uh, I was uh, too much of a coward to watch uh, horrors when I was a a very, very little boy. Like I didn't have any older siblings that exposed me to Freddy or Chucky. Those were just the scary VHS covers. But I started experimenting uh, with the genre, I think through uh, vampires might have been my first subgenre. In, in middle school, I was I was uh, I was reading some some Tomb of Dracula Marvel comics and uh, uh, researching Blade and uh, watching the Blade films as a <laughs> sort of a, a, a gateway. But um, love Blade. Blade's a lot of fun, but it doesn't not really like horror horror. No, more more uh, action utilizing horror elements. Yeah, and and uh, I I had a friend in middle school who she was obsessed with uh, the Saw movies, and I thought that this was just disgusting that she liked this messed up stuff, and I, I, we would kind of argue about it. And uh, then she bought me a Saw DVD uh, for my birthday, and it's a fun DVD. It's got the clear case, and the disc is a uh, circular saw. That's right, I remember it well. Neither of those um, were were really. Uh, too, super super formative, but just like once I once I started, I I, I never stopped. Yeah, I, I I do when I'm I don't get to the movie yet, right? No, I mean if it's part of your for, formative years, then certainly we could start talking about it now. Uh, yeah, well, I would say it's very formative. We're talking about Eraserhead. Yes, and uh, <laughs> I this is a this is a movie that it's it's not. 
it's not for little kids and um <laughs> it's it's uh, i was think i think i was uh, around age 12 or 13 so i was watching a lot of horror movies and it, it was it's like appears on you know lists and and i thought yeah i'll check this out it seems it seems like fun it was my first david lynch movie uh first david lynch anything and i did not know what i was getting into and I got my shit all the way freaked by that little baby. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this is a perfect segue. This was also my first entry into David Lynch. And I liked it. I liked it a whole bunch. I thought it was really beautifully shot. And the way that it looked was really spectacular. But I didn't really connect with it totally. You know, I I did like a lot of people do. I kind of looked at it and I was like, Oh, this is just like weird. It's just weird to be weird. And I think that that's very much not the case with this movie. And having now come back to it after exposing myself to the rest of David Lynch's filmography, I think that it sort of primes you for an understanding of this work. And I think that sort of a Rosetta Stone. Well, no, like the reverse Rosetta Stone where you need, you know, you need to have an understanding of David Lynch's language in order to come to this and understand it. That's true. Yeah. But you do see uh, a a lot of, a lot of the stuff in here continues on throughout and I'm sure we'll get, we'll get to all that. Right. It does persist. And uh, I enjoyed it a lot more this time through, even though I already enjoyed it the first time. So uh, I'm glad you did, George, because if you keep on slandering my eraser head, I'm about to erase your head. Oh, shit. (laughs) Wow. I'm glad that we got that threat recorded, folks. I'm curious if you feel like horror has influenced your art at all. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I like I like drawing just creepy and freaky stuff. I mean, I I think I can blame my mother partly because uh, we would go to museums a lot when I was a little kid and I would get bored and uh, especially in like the religious areas of the museums and and my mom knew how to keep me interested she would always point out the dragons and the devils in in (laughs) in those paintings and yeah i just i like stuff that i haven't seen before and stuff that makes my skin crawl and uh i i think i'm like uh my mom reads all my work and i don't i don't want to offend her sensibilities too too bad um (laughs) But uh, yeah, I, th- I think I, I I'd like to do more more horror. I make I make comic books, but I I, I draw like I think it's kind of a default default to 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 draw. I, I mean, not that I I I only do one kind of thing. Um, I right. can do cute stuff too. But I have this game that I played with my mom too that uh, is called Do You Trust This Man? And uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of based around just the inclination that I have to keep drawing until these men are completely untrustworthy, which isn't hard, right? Yeah, but... Yeah, um, no, definitely not. That's funny as hell. That's a great game. <laughs> so when we were discussing your pick, a lot of your potential choices were pretty goopy. I love the goop. You love the goop. But that's not the only type of movie we've talked about. You like him before. You even mentioned at the very beginning that you sort of delved into like vampire stuff as a genre, as a subgenre before like moving forward. And so I'm curious if you have a subgenre where you're like, yeah, that's my favorite. I'm like, I just give that like the benefit of the doubt and assume that I'm going to like stuff that falls within this. Uh, yeah, I, I I tend to like 
and and this this is kind of uh, an umbrella that a lot of other subgenres fall into, but I I tend to like body horror, and I think that watching like saw in middle school and then seeing this eraser head baby it just like seeing stuff go wrong with the human body is a, a lot scarier and more disturbing to me than say ghosts or you know satan i was not raised religious though i love <laughs> the satan imagery so i would say body horror or I, I I love Texas Chainsaw and uh, that that is towards the top for me too. So just like human beings, I'm terrified of other humans and uh, <laughs> what they can be capable of. I, Texas Chainsaw Two was also up there for me. I just like the 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 performances in there and the environment that they inhabit. It's just like being in the same space as, as Chop Top and the family and uh, it, being in this Bones art installation. Yeah, The Shining is towards the top for me too. And it's like, I think psychological horror and body horror tend to be um, my faves. Um, and just like stuff that, that functions as as art and cinema beyond the the but you know i can i i i i I hesitate to say that because i i feel like eraserhead is is a bit of an arty pick you know um i i I went Mm -hmm. to art school i I, i'm i i try to have good taste but i i love bad taste too you know i like the the (laughs) the the pre-lord of the rings peter jackson's I, i i i love uh uh evil dead was also a choice. Evil Dead 2 was taken and then I rewatched Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 and I was like I just love these both both of these and Evil Dead 2 has so much good stuff. I feel like I couldn't really make the argument Evil Dead 1 is the best. But right. Eraserhead hit me is so young uh and just like uh the f- the feeling of being in the movie like hit me at my core that like I didn't know I could be unsettled in that way. Yeah. And so the, there's many reasons why maybe I should spread myself out a, a little <laughs> bit. I, I, ha, I, I, I'm not sure what I'll, what I'll get into here in my intro versus, but I, I would say like shining being a runner up, you know what Stanley Cubes uh, said was his favorite film of all time and played for the cast of The Shining to get them in the this mood. One. You got it. So, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it was inspiring for me to uh, read through all of... David got like a long time to get this movie off the ground and it was oh, not yeah. received well. And like, it kind of grew a reputation, I think, because like the imagery is so powerful and like a lot of people are just going to see this and be like, I don't want any part of this. It's fucking mm-hmm. not fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, that's part of why it's so effective. Like Texas Chainsaw too, like the sound, the sound design of that as well. I think that's mm-hmm. why that one is towards the top. And I think it's less so in the second one. There's less of like the pig sound effects and like Texas Chainsaw one. It sounds like you're in a slaughterhouse and right. it really feels like you're there and very evocative. Yeah. The, the, the environment of the sound and the 
art direction and just like I feel like Eraserhead is the whole package. I don't know if I'm jumping the gun, but um, no, I think, I, I think I've think made right. my thesis statement. Yeah, definitely. Um, and Eraserhead definitely does fall within sort of that body horror, goopy sort of uh, vibe. Um, like we said, this is a David Lynch production. It's his first feature and a Philly classic. And this, in fact, catapults him into a tie for first place with legendary John Carpenter for movies picked on this show. Oh, wow. This is a, sort of a Philadelphia film. Sort of a Philadelphia film. And like I said somewhere, that Philadelphia, to me, is a city that's really filled with fear. Wow. So wow. what better choice for Best Little Horror House in Philly than the Philadelphia film, Eraserhead, right. directing by our favorite Uncle Dave? <laughs> I think that it's really interesting sort of that John Carpenter and David Lynch are the two that have really connected with so many people with so many different movies. Because on the one hand, they're kind of like peas in a pod with you got Battlementi and John on the synths. You know, both directors are kind of doing their like auteur thing where they do a lot of the production and writing and directing and everything. But on the other hand, where Carpenter does this very bold and brash, here's a horror movie kind of stuff. Lynch does this like creepy, unsettling horror that gets under your skin through both the surrealism and how grounded it can be in real life terror. And I just think that it's really interesting that it is sort of like both prongs i feel like of where horror can come from in this uh like monstrous like slasher way and also in this just really unnerves you kind of way plus both of them still have plenty of movies that i could feasibly see being picked for the show including halloween christine in the mouth of madness or mulholland drive or firewalk with me so oh wow yeah those, those haven't been picked yet i i I just pause and rewind, George, um, because I was talking through all my all my runners up and my my body horror and my my some of my favorite picks and Texas Chainsaw and Shining. They were taken. Evil Dead Two was taken, but those were not my my finalists. I I think even if they were not already shown on the show, my three finalists were. <laughs> and, and you want me to talk about one movie? But I'm a maverick, just like John McCain, and I can't talk about body horror without mentioning my buddy David Cronbone Cronenberg himself. That's right. My other two finalists for my appearance on BLHHIP were uh, The Fly and Videodrome, and uh, these are both very special to me as well. I'll try to just blaze through this, George. Uh, sure, we love Crony. I was not authorized to, I'm, I'm bucking the format. Uh, uh, so fly it's, it's got, it's got the goop. It's got central performance by Goldblum. Uh, we don't know what he's up to in his, in his, in his personal life, but he's, he's very effective as this nerd who becomes increasingly untrustworthy. Do you trust this man? No, I, I'm not sure I do. You know what? I'm not <laughs> sure I do, George. And uh, I feel Eraserhead is very personal to me, but there's reasons why the others are as well. And The Fly, I was actually going through a Brundle Fly experiment of my own. I, in, in the experience <laughs> of running outside uh, in the COVID era, as opposed to my, my um, elliptical in, gym, in the gym that never hurt me, I built up <laughs> blood blood underneath my toenails and one of my wow. toenails had to be removed 
So I I regret not asking for that big toenail for my Brundle Museum, <laughs> but uh, I, th- I feel like I could have brought that personal experience to that episode. So I'm sorry to the listeners that that will not come to pass in the, this coming hour or uh, however we go. Um, Videodrome is, is uh, I think it's got a lot to say about the what we expose ourselves to on the screens we're obsessed with yeah. the screens and we especially as horror fans we we gravitate towards the more and more extreme stuff as we become desensitized and uh yeah it's got a lot to say about our our culture our screens uh pu- putting a gun into a uh hole in your belly and uh <laughs> taking it out and I, the, 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 I mean, it's uh, well ahead of its time as well. The fact that it was made so long ago and really is still so, so representative of where we're at in our relationships with media mm-hmm. and with the screens, I think is, is really shocking. Like yeah. how in- incredibly well it still holds up and, and maybe the, not a good thing for us. Yeah, And that was even at a period of time where we did not have, uh, ex- uh, increasingly hardcore pornography available on our screens at all times. Like this is right. very prescient. Um, that that this guy was like searching for this violent sexual stuff. I I, I would say that 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 maybe is not my. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit. I was I was a uh, uh, my dad's Protestant. I was I'm I'm a little bit uh repressed to be taking on that subject matter. And, and on that note, I also uh, self rejected an, another uh, finalist by my buddy Clive Barker, the Hellraiser and Hellraiser Two, Hellbound. Yeah. Um. These are I think if we're going on imagery alone, these are the the best. You know. Uh, sure. Chatterer is my boy. People know this. Chatterer, Chatterer one, not Chatterer two. Although I do also like the chattery dogs in in, in Inferno. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I I think like yeah the the Frank's regeneration in Hellraiser one is oh, just man. sublime cinema. Yeah. And the Cenobites, you don't really get. I mean, besides the Xenomorph, which Alien was also already taken, um, and that would have also been one of my top ones. I love a space movie, and and uh, you don't really get much scarier space. Event Horizon also great as far as space and body horror. Yeah, but yeah, the Hellraiser. I I felt like I couldn't all the way endorse it as the top horror because of the, uh, you know, the sexual elements. Well, oh yeah, I, I might not be the per- the the top pain pleasure S and M expert, so I thought I'd leave that to somebody else. But also, the acting is just—it's uh, a little rough at times. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. Yeah, um, you know, I think that Julia Julia is a great villain. I think that she does a great job of sort of portraying that decline. But mm. yeah, especially the dad does get a little rough at times. Although I do think that he does a really great job when he transitions into like Frank Dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is great. It is. It's a, a really great movie. Both come to daddy. Really it's very oh. creepy. Yeah. Um. And his and his face is falling off. Ooh. Oh God. It's really good. Yeah. That, that's like oh, some that's great, great goop. Movie. I just I I watched all of these in preparation, but Eraserhead was first. I think I might have watched it before all of these, and for that reason, it it hit me in this elemental place, and sure. it it's still. It still gets me to this day. I think like it's it doesn't have it's not as 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 schlocky as some other fun favorites, but it puts me in a place of true horror. Like 
like few others. The horror of being a human being with responsibilities like <laughs> a little baby with pustules all over him and uh, <laughs> crying all night. And it's real. It's it's. I haven't it seen real. a baby like that. And I, I have not reproduced so far, but I uh, eraser head. And uh, now I, I'm now I'm I'm finally willing to speak about the movie I promised to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, we did like ten mini episodes in there. Everyone, you're getting really getting your bang for your buck on here. I was wondering if I would uh, get away with it, and uh, you d- thank you for not pulling the brakes on me. No, I would never. Wouldn't dream of it, Andy. So as we discussed on the Blue Velvet episode, David Lynch grew up in like the suburban Pacific Northwest. And that was when he like he moved to Philly to study painting in the 60s before eventually dropping out to head to L.A. But those three semesters that he was here really had an impact on David. It might be worth setting the scene a little bit. Oh, hats off, folks. Hats off to you. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so to set the scene, although some things have stayed the same, like the various row homes lining the streets instead of like big open lawns and whatever. Philadelphia in the late 60s was a very, very different place. The manufacturing sector of the city was really on the decline. It had created a serious economic stress on people here, and it was pre-Clean uh, Air Act. So the factories that were still here were pumping this like gross black smog into the air that just hung around like a funeral shroud. And then on top of all of these economic factors, Frank Rizzo was the police commissioner. This was right before his mm. first mayoral term. And For people who don't know Frank Rizzo, he's a scumbag who famously created an environment where police abuses could run rampant, including brutality, intimidation, and coercion. He also was a huge racist. Uh, He encouraged the police to terrify black and brown people. He raided the Black Panther Party headquarters illegally. And of course, as mayor, handled the first conflict with MOVE, where he told armed police to forcibly evict these people. And then the police accidentally shot their own guy and blamed move, which created this huge shootout with a ton of injuries and everything. Um, It was basically an unmitigated disaster. Frank Rizzo, an unmatched blemish on Philadelphia, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Sounds like it. And so this is the environment that David is entering. And, it's understandable why this might be a little bit of a shock to the system for someone coming from this like Pleasantville style suburb, basically. Yeah. And it, didn't he meet Peggy, his first wife there? And, uh, and I think they might've had their child while they were still there. And uh, I know that they, they were, I think they were robbed twice and three uh, times. Oh, three times. Wow. Thrice even. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an electric time. People were scared of the police, of losing work, of falling ill. And Lynch said, like we said, he had his house robbed three times. He said, the fear, insanity, corruption, filth, despair, violence in the air was so beautiful to me uh, because it gave me a lot of new ideas and a new way of seeing things. And I think that in his own words, Philadelphia's influence on him, uh, it's hard to overstate. I think because I think that moving from this very like idealized suburb that he has in his mind into something that was so depths of humanity at the time, as far as he was concerned, it created this dichotomy that is really, really visible in all of his movies about sort of the seedy underbelly and the darkness within humanity and everything. And this contrast between industrial and natural 
that I think is mm-hmm. is really interesting in a lot of his work. Yeah, there's a there's a great passage in in here. I've got uh, so in my Criterion edition of Eraserhead, it comes with a this little book that is a section of Lynch on Lynch. So there's a little bit about the environment that I think he was inspired by and that he creates in the movie. In my mind, it was a world between. In my mind, it was a world between a factory and a factory neighborhood. A little unknown, twisted, almost silent lost spot where little details and little torments existed, and people were struggling in darkness. They're living in those fringe lands, and they're the people I really love. Henry's definitely one of these people. They kind of get lost in time. They're either working in a factory or fiddling with something or other. It's a world that neither here nor there came out of the air in Philadelphia. I always say it's my Philadelphia story. Just doesn't have Jimmy Stewart in it. <laughs> so, yeah, I think he he's he sees kind of like forgotten forgotten people and uh I, I think he's seeing the the death of the American dream, you know. He's, he he comes from the 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 picket fences and uh he saw what it's 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 really like in in a, in a in a city uh especially when when he was there in Philly and um yeah, it kind of it kind of runs through all of his work. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't get a chance to see Philadelphia Story before I recorded the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I I told you not to mention it wow. to embarrass me. me under the bus. <laughs> uh, but I if if this is his version of Philadelphia Story, except that one has Jimmy Stewart, I can pretty much imagine it uh, is. Uh, <laughs> Well, what are you doing there? Why are you putting turning my head into an eraser? Uh, I'm Jimmy Stewart. Uh, don't take my head and put it into an eraser. Pipe down, Merry you Christmas, freak baby. you old freakish baby. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's the big idea? Mary, you're a sick baby. <laughs> and so one. Oh, and also, if, if anyone cares, uh, he lived on the 2400 block of Poplar. There you go. Wow, this is a real Philly podcast. <laughs> I don't know where that is. Oh, second layer coming off, folks. It's here we go. Here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so one of these new ideas that David got from his time in Philadelphia was using film to animate his experimental paintings, which is what he was there to study. The short film Six Men Getting Sick Six Times was developed in that first semester and was received well to the point that somebody commissioned David to do another experimental piece for them. That piece wound up falling through. But he was allowed to keep the remaining funds, which led to his short film, The Alphabet. And I know that you watched this as well. I rewatched The Alphabet, too, before this. And I do think that there are some clear through lines from it to Eraserhead in both the look of it and the nightmare aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just love these. I I watched I watched all the short films on on my disc, and uh, yeah, there there was. Um, Six six men getting sick. Alphabet the 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 grandmother, the amputee, and premonitions falling evil. Dead. That's just a minute. Who cares? But uh, the alphabet and the grandmother. Did you see the grandmother? Grandmother's too? really good. Yeah, it's I, amazing. I, I've seen uh, the collection, and um, it's really really great. I like from his short works. I really like. I think it's just called like boat. And oh, I gotta see. It's this like one. it's a uh, very satisfying. Like just it's someone little, like little yachty. It's like a little yeah, yachty, exactly. uh, <laughs> little boat. Um, he's doing his thing. He sings broccoli. <laughs> That's really good. I also I like rabbits. Oh yeah, rabbits. I've seen rabbits. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I think I like rabbits more than I like Inland Empire. 
actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I know that it sort of became Inland Empire. He cut a lot of rabbits and sort of just interspersed it into it. But um, I really like rabbits as its own sort of whole, like whole entity. Um, I think that that's really good. And then, of course, What Did Jack Do is is a lot of fun mm. on uh, on Netflix. God damn you to Tataban. <laughs> yeah, I just like the, these um, these first three, especially like seeing a, a painter kind of transform into an animator, into a film director who I think he he kind of keeps the heart of an animator and a painter in 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 all of his work. And yeah. I just really love. Have you seen Dumbland? I just saw the first episode, and I was saving it. And now you called me out. Uh, this is this <laughs> is an odds and ends that I did not get to. Wow! And and you wanted to watch the Philadelphia story instead of I, Dumbland. I know the the but um the grandmother and the alphabet especially they've got like really great horror imagery uh, in them to the point where I was like the eraser had actually uh, loses some some of the like. It th- those almost feel like more like pure horror almost um, alphabet mm-hmm. and the grandmother and the grandmother also that has has like direct precedence uh, for what we find in here. There's like mounds of dirt and uh, uh, didn't grandmother come out after it though? No, 1970. And I think that that's the one. That's so. Uh, grandmother is what he made with. Um, he he was in Philly going to art school, and then he learned about the American Film Institute Advanced uh, Cinema. Uh, right, Alphabet Fellowship got yeah. him a production grant from the yeah. AFI, and so he, he dropped out of PIFA to study at their conservatory in LA. Yeah, so I think the grant paid for Grandma, and I then uh, he started working on. Uh, he worked on a racer head when he was at the the conservatory fellowship, whatever it was. But yeah, I think grandmother uh, was what he got, for, what he made from that or- original um, grant. Okay, I know there was also one that he made. Like they had, they wanted to test a new film stock or something. <laughs> so he oh yeah, like, that, I'll do it. That's amputee. Yeah, and right. Catherine Coulson actually it's actually gets to be on camera in that one. We love to see it. The log lady, Jack Nance's wife. He uh, the, at the time she they uh, they sense divorced yeah but they 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 were remained friends and appeared on Twin right. Peaks together and I think the biggest one of the biggest stories of all this behind the scenes stuff I've been watching about Eraserhead is how much Catherine Coulson was like a, a a champion instrumental yeah i'll i'll just uh i'll read a little bit of lynch on lynch he was she was promised to uh she was going to be a nurse in the hospital for them to go get the baby and uh it says here Catherine kept joking when am i going to shoot my scene like five years later and stuff like this <laughs> maybe she was serious maybe she actually wanted to be on camera but uh, Catherine has got this personality where she sort of denies every kind of desire for herself and fulfills those of others. When everyone else was sleeping during the day, she was out earning money as a waitress. She'd bring her yep. tips back and food from the restaurant and take care of stuff. And many times she put her own money into the film. So she's like doing so much for this movie. She learned how to... Uh, she 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 started out, I think, um, holding a boom and then she learned how to run the cameras and... It sounds like she, she was just Nance's doing everything hair. back there. She did the hair. She actually says that she re- regretted not taking the credit for that hair for yeah. Mr. Nance or whatever. Yeah, it's 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 such an iconic like piece of the character. I think that she should get credit for it. Yeah. So thank God that 
he followed through on it. The, uh, the, I think they, um, he conceived of Log Lady while filming Eraserhead and that he followed through on that at least. Uh, it, I think that she seems like very grateful that it, it uh, led to this whole huge part of her career. And we love her and we honor her. Yeah, we do. She's great. And it, this is crazy, the stuff about his original ideas for uh log lady he was gonna she was gonna have her own show a half hour tv show called i'll test my log with every branch of knowledge (laughs) and uh her husband had been killed in a forest fire and his ashes are on the mantelpiece with his pipes and his sock hat he was a woodsman got a light Mm. uh but the fireplace (laughs) is completely boarded up because she is now very afraid of fire but yeah there's like that happens in the books i believe really in secret history of twin peaks that like that's the backstory is that she got all fucked up from like an alien abduction as a kid and then she had this like great husband that everyone loved and then he died in a forest fire um wow. and it fucked her up even more well you're more of a frosthead than and i am her that he it's his spirit his spirit is the one in the log oh wow okay yeah, and there's this fun description of what they would, <laughs> she was going to like bring her log to the dentist and uh, they sometimes go to a diner and they never get to where they're going. I, I would have liked to see this this uh, spinoff, but um, yeah, she's her iconic performance in Twin Peaks and, and in The Return. Margaret Lanterman. Yes. She's great. We love her. Um, she also did the the little intros for all the episodes that are really great as well. Um, nice little, nice little bonus log lady action. Oh, I haven't seen those. Oh, they're great. She gives like these very like cryptic clues as to what you're about to see. Um, nice little bit of lore, but love it. When David got to the conservatory, he was initially intending to make a movie called Garden Back, yeah, a 45 minute surrealist film about adultery and coveting your neighbor, represented by a continuously growing insect. And yeah. AFI said this is too long. <laughs> It was such a weird surrealist script. And so David said, okay, here's a 21 page script for Eraserhead. And people think that this was inspired by his fear of fatherhood. And of course he refuses to explain it himself characteristic of David, but he had very recently had his daughter, Jennifer unexpectedly. She was born with severely clubbed feet that needed surgery and the main character does look a lot like David between the hairdo and the style and everything. So it does stand to reason for me that this is a little bit of a self insert kind of uh, getting his fears out on celluloid kind of thing. There's a pretty absurd part in here where they they're like um, the interviewer is saying you're being the reluctant art school father and she had the club feet and uh, the, also in the movie, Henry works as a printer, which David also did. The name of the factory that he works at is even the name of the owner of the print shop that David worked at. Wow. Yeah. And then he's like, sure, obviously, since a person is alive and they're noticing things around them, ideas are going to come. But that would mean there'd be a hundred million Eraserhead stories out there. Everybody <laughs> has a kid and they make a Eraserhead. It's ridiculous. It's just not <laughs> that. It's a million other things. So he's like, the okay, these are like so one to one with your actual life, and he's like, if it was just my own personal experience <laughs> of of having, you know, it's yeah, no, it's okay, you, David. You can admit that. I think he just does not want people to think that he's going to take uh, a pair of scissors to Jennifer's <laughs> internal organs, which we uh, never would have gotten uh, the secret diary of Laura Palmer, which she wrote. That's correct. Yeah. 
It's an interesting choice to make your daughter do that. Well, I don't know about make. <laughs> Did she volunteer to do that? I, I think so. Or I think he maybe he asked her if she would yeah, be willing. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that that does make some sense to me. You know, in Catching the Big Fish, he very explicitly talks about sort of how he uh, just kind of lets the ideas fly past him and he, he reaches in. And this is around the time when he was getting into transcendental meditation. And so that is something that he really uses a lot in order to get these ideas um, and to dive down into himself, as he calls it. But, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the meaning is. He feels, he doesn't think. He kind That's of, right. it. it uh, yeah, he said, I felt Eraserhead. I didn't think it. Yeah, and, and it's just like, it's kind of like, magic that this guy got to that he got to live basically in the stable of the film institute for i think uh two or three full years out of the five years that it took to film this thing he got uh loans from family members he got i mean he fully ran out of money a couple times but like with the Catherine Coulson, like the the people involved believed in this so much and they they described themselves as a family, but like so few people. And uh, I mean, he was also working like a paper route and putting that yeah, money right back into it and everything. That's true. And the, Nance would help out with the paper route. And it was like it should have taken like hours and hours, but like he would get it done in two. And Nance kept the hairdo the whole time. Yeah. And he had to he had to sit in the middle of a back seat so that people wouldn't stare and uh, make fun of him. <laughs> I love the hairdo. I think it's great. Yeah. And AFI mistakenly assumed that it would follow the traditional rule of thumb that one page of script equals one minute of screen time. <laughs> um, and so they thought they were going to be getting like a 20 minute short, basically. And several of the board members were still a bunch of old stuffed shirts who didn't want to do it even at 20 minutes. And the dean of the conservatory, Frank Daniel, basically wound up having to threaten to resign in order to get it approved. That's right. It's crazy how little this guy entering the film institute had any concept of what a a movie movie like the the his a his process viable one <laughs> yeah his process of of working on uh, garden back it sounds it sounds interesting when you look at a girl something crosses from her to you and in this story that something is an insect but it was it was forty five pages he took his entire first year there to rework and rework this 45 pages but he was he was confronted by one of the guys who who works there or whatever he, he was like there's you need to have the people talking to each other he had to be basically explain the concept of like dialogue <laughs> <laughs> and then then like in having to add that connective tissue to make it like a normal movie which Thank God he pushed back against this, but he said it was watering it down and it made the project pretty much worthless. And then at the end of his first year, in the second year, instead of like getting to work with the other second year students or something, he was assigned to work with the first year students. So he was like, what did I did I fail or something? And he got so mad that he went to the uh, Frank Daniel, who who was the the guy who was teaching him about dialogue, and he said, "I'm out of here. I quit. This is this is how much he already believed in his ideas, and he was still figuring out what a damn movie was." Um, right. <laughs> 
And then, so he goes home and it turns out, and he's, he, he's thrown this big tantrum and they, they've been calling him off the hook. They don't want him to leave. And so he, he comes back and he's talking to this Frank and he says, we must be doing something wrong because when you're, you're one of our favorite people and you're upset, what do you want to do? So he's already getting the, the blank check to do whatever he's want to th- shout out to blank check podcast. Um, and then he <laughs> wow. says, shouting out competitors. <laughs> wow. Okay. Competitors. So he says, well, I sure don't want to do this piece of shit garden back now. It's wrecked. <laughs> and they, he says, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to do a racer head. And then they say, okay, wow. do a racer head then. So I don't even know if they saw a script before. This sounds like it was just one exchange where he just like came up with a name out of his ass, maybe. And, you know, then he. he I think that I think that after that, he still had to in order to get like the resources, had to give like a little bit of a a presentation to like the board. uh, Yeah. So he does a 21 page script and then they're like, okay, 21, 21 minute movie. And then he's like, I think it's going to be a little more than that. So they were like, okay, 41. (laughs) And he's like, sure. And then (laughs) the rest is history. We got an hour and a half movie which originally like. uh, It was even longer than that. Yeah, it was was like like two hours. Yeah. And that played to a shocked audience, as you can imagine. And all right, then, well, don't get too, you're getting too far ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I got all my resources out here. My, yeah, my, hey, he's too well prepared, folks. My extremely I'm, I'm, dense notes. I'm holding <laughs> wow. Oh, my camera. gosh. Wow. Those are dense. There's a piece in here that he's talking about filmmakers he admires. And first he's talking about Fellini. He's always talking about a mood. And that's, that's I think, how Lynch is working through moods and less through plot. Um, yeah. And that's, I think, uh, inspired by people like Fellini and Bergman. Um, then he talks about Herzog. My man. And uh, he showed a journal that he'd kept. He'd notated every single day. And I said he must have had the world's sharpest pencil because this writing was crystal clear, but so small you'd need a magnifying glass to read it. The journal was very small, about two inches by two inches, and each page was filled with you know four or five hundred sentences it was unbelievable so i'm a a comic book artist i'm i letter my own stuff i write my own stuff i do everything and i took that as a challenge you know so i I got you know i got about five thousand i kind of beat herzog but it's all right Um, (laughs) take that werner and then the interviewer said he, he can be pretty crazy he's threatened to shoot people on set I mean, we know who was asking for it. Kinski was a wild man. But then uh, <laughs> Lynch Lynch said, that's not crazy. Get real, Chris. So uh, <laughs> we're lucky that Lynch is not pulling a gun on uh, any of these poor actors that dealt with him for five years on his first movie. Yeah, definitely. Six years. And so he did finally get it approved. and. Yes. They let him use the school's campus for the film sets. Like you said, he turned the stables that no longer got used into a series of sets. He lived in them for several years. Illegal. He him- said he admits that this was an illegal thing that he was doing. <laughs> we won't tell on you, David. Yeah. And they also let him use the Greystone Mansion for scenes, which is also owned by AFI. This place gets used a ton. It's also been used at the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. Oh, uh, wow. It's been in Big Lebowski, Witches of Eastwick, Death Becomes Her, The Prestige. Mm. The list goes on and on. And both Gardenback and Eraserhead were influenced by Lynch reading the Metamorphosis while studying. So for once, 
it is actually appropriate to say that this is Kafka-esque. <laughs> yes, he also talks about his Kafka influence here. He says that like he would be brothers or something. And you know, there's also the famous quote where Lynch says, believe it or not, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film before mm. refusing to elucidate. No, and this, yeah. this plays into Catching the Big Fish again, in which he said that the film came together, quote unquote, after he opened the Bible, read a single verse, and then walked away. Although he claims not to remember which verse. Oh but damn! He, I was that was, was going to be my question. Something. Yeah, he, he he won't tell, and of course that is very much like David. <laughs> even if this is true, who the who the hell even knows if he's, he's just adding to the mystery? He's so elusive in in. I mean, he'll he'll do interviews, but he will not give you a straight answer. This guy, so he's asking <laughs> An enigma. What, where's the point of view at this film? It's at, at times it's hard to tell. And he says, "I don't know. It is what it is." <laughs> and then he's asked, like, if you decide you're on one interpretation of events before you start shooting a film, uh, do you feel that will somehow limit the possibilities? He says, I don't even think about that. I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know quite how to tell you how I do think about it, but you know enough to tell somebody what to do in this scene. This guy just trusts his gut to the point where like he, I mean, it. I think like I only trust myself. I want to, I want to control everything in my comics, but then I also second guess everything to the point where like, the ordering people around to create my vision is like, that is a nightmare in and of itself. Like the imagining sure. having this kind of power and this people relying on me to deliver a story that they're involved with for five years. It's yeah. It's, it's scary. It's, and it's wild. He's got, he's got balls, this guy, you know, not to use a gendered, <laughs> uh, uh, he's got, um, he's, he's, uh, he's brave. He is brave. And, uh, you know, I think that it says a lot about the people that he surrounded him with that he was able to cast and and have crew that was so supportive and did stick with it and was as brave as he is. You know, Jack Nance was cast almost immediately, but they ran into the money troubles so quickly because obviously the budget intended for a 40 minute short or whatever is not going to cover a feature length movie. So like we said, it took five years. They'd run out of money after three and, you know, they just had to do so much work in order to make this movie happen and not only trusting himself but being so passionate about it that he is willing to get out there and and make the money to keep doing it a scene or two at a time i think it really says a lot about his commitment to an artistic expression yeah and it's like oh, like so few people are are able to I, I i'm i'm just so happy that this film was made because you get the whole career after that where people kind of trust him to have his sort of abstract elliptical thinking it says in in hollywood if you can't write your own ideas down or if you can't pitch them or if they're so abstract they can't be pitched properly then they don't have a chance of surviving and I, he just made it happen so big ups to dino de Laurentiis on that end too though to be honest i mean so much of his working with dino as a producer and dino being able to let go and be like, yes, I do trust you to just execute your vision, whatever that may be. And you do have sort of final edit. It, it, for that to happen after the flop of Dune, you know, yeah. is, is really says a lot about the willingness of Dino De Laurentiis to sort of go out on a limb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was shot with two different cinematographers because Herb Cardwell died in his sleep at the young age of 39, two years in. Yeah. Well, so, he also needed to get, he also needed to get paid. Um, so he, right. like, he took this he job bailed, where he was, and then um, died. 
He was putting like film projectors into planes so that they could watch. It was before video, so they could watch movies on planes. And yeah. they they would go around doing this. And then they were like, where's Herb, right? And then they went to his hotel and, and Herb was dead in his bed. Two op- autopsies were done on Herb and they still Damn. don't know why he died. So I think that c- certain parts of... This, you know, a, a movie, uh, uh, any creative project is the baby of the creator. And uh, this movie is kind of about a cursed baby. And Eraserhead itself is a bit of a cursed baby in, its, in, in some ways uh, yeah. itself. I mean, David's playing with some dark <laughs> magic here. And uh, I'm not going to blame him for Herb's death, of course. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Herb didn't make it out of Eraserhead yeah. alive. So Frederick Elms took yep. over instead. One thing that's interesting about this movie is that um, nobody knows how he made the prop kid. That's cursed. Yes. Named Spike by Jack Nance. Um, he blindfolded <laughs> the projectionist and basically just refuses to talk about it beyond saying like it was born nearby and it was found. And so this has led to some people Uh-oh. thinking that it might be like a skinned rabbit or a sheep or cow fetus. And I'm curious what you think about this thing, because it's like really hard to look at. Well, George, I talked about my personal connections to some of the other films we've discussed in my length, lengthy intro. And some of the, some of the background that I'm bringing to this is uh, not just my uh, relating to uncle Dave as a visual artist, but also I have worked all of the years since graduating from art school in 2013 as a pet care professional part-time. And the uh, black magic that Dave is playing with in the production of this, he describes deferring a mouse and the skin or or the uh, hairless mouse did not make it to the movie. Did you hear anything about this dead cat that he was messing around with? That was one of the scenes that got cut, right? Is uh, Henry Spencer is like playing with his dead cat, like poking it with a stick. Yeah. So he says, I love organic phenomena. So he wanted a dead cat. Uh, He wanted to study it. So he got it from a, a, a vet. He managed to convince a vet to give him a cat that was being put down. Thankfully, we don't hear anything about the in the bonus <laughs> features Lynch about stalking the streets uh, of L.A. David taking <laughs> murdering taking cats. out this cat. Yeah. So he. I mean, and and George, we I both love it. cats, and I I just I want to take this time to thank you. It's it's great time to have me on your podcast because I've I've taken in a cat of my own that uh, you tagged me in a Twitter thread about this backyard cat That's who right. now lives in my home. So I can thank you for my new daughter, and let me know if this grizzly <laughs> cat business is it's a horror podcast. So, but this is just I feel like it's it's part of the contest of what what are uncle dave is getting involved in he put the cat in uh formaldehyde and he says it went in like a slinky uh sinking down and then after after he put it in to the jar before lunch after lunch he had the cat had gone through rigor mortis so then it was like taking a steel cat out of a glass jar uh, he says that we opened it up and it was unbelievable. The study of cat was Im- was important to him, and he he was he sounds so fast. It's 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 a little perverse. He says the organs oh, yeah. were bright colors, and then immediately when he opened it up, they were Gross. faded after. This is just the beginning of his experiments with the cat. So he, there's like a, a lot of puddles in the movie. We've like barely <laughs> talked about the actual movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, there's lots of puddles in the movie, swampy sort of industrial yeah. puddles. And uh, there's there's these uh, pool of water with tar at the bottom. He sank this, I assume it's the same cat. Please <laughs> let this only be one cat. He sank it into the tar water. He pulled it up a year later and it had been, quote unquote, impregnated with tar. Uh, two years, the second year he's pulling it out of the tar water, it became a perfect marriage of cat and earth. In the deleted scene, Henry caught his foot on a wire attached to the cat. That's all the stuff I have on the cat. Um, look, here's what I'll say. I love David Lynch. There's no denying that he's a fucking weirdo. <laughs> Uh, there's something to the some of these horror directors are not the most savory individuals, and uh, no, it's true. And I, I think that there is an understandable sort of fascination with yeah death and you know the great beyond and whatever. Uh, and I don't want to be too incriminating. He seems like a, a nice guy, and and we are dealing with all dead animals as far as we know. I mean, it, it's right, it's exactly. fully serial killer material. If if <laughs> if any of these animals were alive, then we fully denounced Uncle Dave. But as far as we know, it wasn't. So yeah, 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 yeah. Uncle Dave. Oh yeah, and uh, we're on thin ice. But... I think I mentioned Videodrome without denouncing James Woods. So Jimmy, oh, yeah. Jimmy, James you're Wood, dead to scumbag. us. Scumbag. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> you, Jim. <laughs> yeah, you fucking suck, dude. Yeah. So I'm done talking about that awful cat. I, but yeah, I think like that he won't say what he made the baby out of is very disturbing. And I it looks so organic. And I'm just like having just watched Alien and the Alien commentary and them talking about how they used like s- s- shellfish and seafood, seafood yeah. for... Uh, the inside of the the uh, face face grabber face grabber face hugger uh, chest buster <laughs> face face hugger sorry uh, <laughs> and uh, the like that got me thinking like this thing just like looks like it's made out of animal material and then also that they were talking about how they use umbilical cords for some of these little spermy wormy snaky guys in this movie that uh, yeah. the lady in the radiator she's squishing them later he's toss them against the wall. These were umbilical cords and they, they affectionately call uh, them uh, billy cords. And they said they were never, we were never short of billy cords. That seems like it was even easier than going to the vet to get the dead cat. They went to the uh, hospital and they were just like, yeah, have all the billies you want. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it was a different time folks. <laughs> yeah. The sound design on its own took a whole year. Wow. Where David uh, and Alan Split lived in a studio apartment that they soundproofed and descended into madness within. Split. That man's that Split's name is already like a Foley effect in itself. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of Split in this movie. There definitely is, and uh, some of the sounds in it are actually as many as 15 different sounds layered on top of each other. Or things like a microphone in a bottle in a tub, and then recording the noise that it makes when air gets blown through that. And then like fiddling with pitch and reverb and frequency and stuff. And one of the notable choices in this movie, as far as sound design, is the inclusion of several constant industrial sounds as like background noise throughout mm-hmm. the whole thing. There's the hum and the hiss of the radiator. There's uh, there's wind. There's the a, factory. Yeah, there's the factory noises. And, everything. and those uh, there was an interesting part in this book about how like you still get like those all these hums and hisses and and uh, crashing around when he's inside. There seems to be little differentiation between the outside and inside in Eraserhead. Something 
uh, that becomes uh, you get that in, in Twin Peaks too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a noisy movie, and the, the like. You can't understate like how important the sound design and the, and the the soundtrack with all the sounds is to creating the mood and the what's like so disturbing about this movie, like being in this space and being in yeah. inside of Henry's head. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the sound for the movie also includes the song In Heaven, written and performed by Peter Ivers, although the lyrics are from Lynch himself. And uh, I think that you mentioned earlier that the test screenings went very poorly, and um, they played to yes. a shocked audience, I think you said, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Lynch cut 20 minutes, and from their description, I don't think we're missing much, uh, including the playing with the dead cat and somebody being tortured. He so. was he was a madman, though. It, yeah, he had he had actually. This was another thing that Catherine Coulson was cut from. She like asked uh, all these women if they were willing to be like tied up with battery cords, and uh, nobody wanted to do it. So she's one of two oh, women shocking. that are two women that are tied up. But um, he. The, they play this uh, movie for this this crowd, and they, they're all like, holy shit, what did we just watch? Also, he was in the back of the theater uh, cranking it up the decibels as the movie went on. So he was <laughs> blowing out the ears of the front way- row as well. And then he he feels like it didn't go like he wanted. And then he, he goes and he cuts, I think I'm getting this word right, the composite. Like I think that this, this is like the the master film strip or whatever. He just like straight up cuts it without even the knowledge of like how to stitch it back together again. And it sounds <laughs> like in doing this process, he lost, he's, he's like, I wish I had that footage. Cause I still love those scenes. He just went like nuts with the scissors. Like he's uh, our buddy Henry at the end of the movie. Wow. There you go. Perfect tie in. <laughs> yeah. And then we got, we got also great. Uh, I think it's like, uh, is it organ music by Fats Waller? That's great. That's also a great element of the, of the sound in the movie. And it reminded me, I mean, this was uh, my first association having watched it as a younger child, more appropriate for children. It reminded me of uh, Wallace and Gromit music, uh, uh, what Gromit listens to on the radio. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Maybe it's the same universe. Yeah. <laughs> the new cut version, though, became kind of this slow burn hit because it had multi-year runs at several theaters as a midnight movie, eventually grossing over $7 million at the theaters. And uh, Lynch has said that John Waters had a lot to do with it, thanks to his praise of the movie at screenings of stuff like Pink Flamingos and Female Troubles, both of which are also popular midnight movies. And one thing that I think is really interesting is that so many midnight movies are great, but really benefit from the audience experience with a crowd. And I think that Eraserhead sort of differentiates itself in that I think that watching it at home and really being able to let the content wash over you and the legitimate creepiness that comes out of it, I think that that might be spoiled by a lot of people sort of acting up like you might at a at a midnight movie and so i'm curious sort of what you think about this being so different from a lot of midnight movies and still finding its success in there yeah well real quick about um john waters i think like people were so in in his corner and and 
It talks about uh, John Waters um, doing like a Q&A about his own movie and not even talking about the movie and just talking about <laughs> Eraserhead, everybody, how everybody's got to see it. But yeah, I, I do feel like it's a different experience than watching it at home. I'm, I'm lucky that I, I have, a, along with a, my new precious daughter, I have a projection screen here, which is a, a late quarantine purchase that now feels like I can fully enter Henry's head of be inside this movie like never before. Um, I actually was able to see this movie at the IFC Center at 12.25 a.m. on Friday, March 4th at 2018. Um, And unfortunately, I have to say no comment on the quality of the movie. I did fall asleep. Uh, Wow. It's late. It's a late. I can fall asleep in any movie, really. It's not a comment on the quality. And I've also seen it already. But I do feel like just uh, hearing the – it is a funny movie. But hearing like other people's laughs might change the experience. Like it's a very isolated uh, experience that we're he he there's he's not the only character in the movie Henry, but the the way that he's interacting with other human beings is like a profound discomfort and alienation. Sure, he he's very lonely, and I think that him and Mary both feel very jailed and very locked in to where they are and and isolated from people because of this situation that they found themselves in. Yeah. The critical reception was mixed with such derision as murkily pretentious sitting side by side with a claim like nightmare clarity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nevertheless, it has gained an excellent reputation over the years, including influencing incredible directors like Stanley Kubrick, like we said, frequently screened it for the cast of The Shining. He also explicitly said that it was one of his favorite movies. Shinya Tsukamoto uh, also sort of drew a lot of influence from it in his creation of Tetsuo the Iron Man, which is oh, really great. Yeah, that was actually a runner up too. I was watching that and just like those effects are just so, so wild. They're and, great. Well, that's that, a really great the, movie. The, I thought somebody should pick every single movie that I've mentioned, but, um, Tetsuo has like such a the the sound design is similar like the uh, Eraserhead and they they, they feel like kind of uh, brothers those movies um, because the yeah. sound is so oppressive in that one too. Yeah, uh, last year I did a. <laughs> I did a double feature of uh, a fucked up people named Tetsuo double feature. Oh, nice. And I watched Tetsuo the Iron Man and Akira. <laughs> Akira would be so, a good one too. Was I was thinking, yeah, should another, I a lot of body horror in there? Should I bring in the animation here? But Lynch is like, like we said, he's got a heart of an animator. That's right. And um, it also influenced uh, Elias Marriages Begotten, which you can hear all about on the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash little horror PHL. And H.R. Giger called it one of the greatest films he'd ever seen coming closer to realizing his vision than even his own movies. Wow. So there you go. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. As we leave 2020 in the rear view and head into 2021, I think we've all earned a resolution to treat ourselves. And nothing says treat like Tuckins, the inside out, all in one s'more. With a crunchy handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate and wrapped inside a fluffy marshmallow on a stick, it'll be love at first taste. And there's all kinds of great flavors that you can mix and match, including original, cookies and cream, peanut butter cup, and even some rad seasonal flavors. Plus, unlike a regular s'more, Tuckins can easily be roasted indoors or out, over the fireplace, the fire pit, even the stovetop will do the trick. And they stay delicious for up to three months in the freezer. So head to Tuckins.com and use the offer code BEST20 to get a whopping 20% off your order, while also letting Tuckins know you heard about them from the Best Little Horror House. That's T-U-C-K-I-N-S.com and BEST20 for 20% off. So make the New Year a sweet one with the no-mess inside-out s'more. And now, back to the show. To get into the actual movie, 
the plot here. Um, what, George? You want to start yeah. talking about the movie? <laughs> <laughs> We're finally getting to it. Oh my god! Henry Spencer's head is just floating around in space before the camera starts to slow zoom in. Also, I should say, Henry Spencer—that's the name of the dad in Psych. That's a weird coincidence. <laughs> Oh, wow. But we're treated to the sound editing right away as the low rumble sort of intensifies and the sound of whipping wind comes in. I think it's really, really great right away. Uh, can, I, can I dub over some drones after <laughs> we're done recording? The- <laughs> we'll throw in some ambient music yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. But eventually we see the man in the planet who pulls a lever as Henry's mouth opens and a sperm basically comes out and shoots off into the inky blackness of space. And as more levers get pulled, The sperm flies into a pool of water, which is, this is ultimately an abstract representation of conception, basically this initial scene. We cut to a more concrete Henry Spencer walking home with his groceries through a worn industrial city. A siren goes off. There's mounds of dirt, the sound of moving mechanisms. It's really great. Like we said, very evocative. It creates this great mood of, like you said, sort of forgottenness. Like it it sounds so busy, but... Henry is completely alone as he walks through these streets. Everything looks like it's been abandoned for years. Things are broken. They're they're dirty. Yeah, this is this is a even though we don't see him at his job, this is I think a plight of a of a worker, uh somebody yeah. who's not who's not really had a lot of advantages and uh I just uh a couple of notes uh before we move on the the man in the planet is our first Truly horrific example of body horror in this movie. He's got what appears to be either terrible acne or or terrible burns, and uh, something. that's something I, d- I identify in the movie with. I have terrible skin, and uh, to this day, almost age thirty, and uh, the horror of recognition, seeing yourself on screen, and then so it's it's sort of an abstract conception here, and and then after we cut from that to straight into Henry's face facing the camera and it almost looks like we're catching him in the act like there's a lot of straight Henry facing the camera and a lot of just great reactions and he often just seems like embarrassed to be seen and to be known and like he almost knows that we've like watched his sperm (laughs) flying around you know (laughs) yeah I I think that Jack Nance is doing a lot of really great physical acting in this movie. You know, not only does he have an extremely expressive face in which he looks permanently abashed and embarrassed. Wounded, yeah. But even, I mean, sometimes it even feels like he's doing a friggin' like Charlie Chaplin impression. Like as he's walking home and he steps in the puddle. And like, and he like shakes it off. Yeah, he's he's like he's kind of doing a a, Chaplin's a good good uh, comparison. He's he's kind of like playfully going on top of some mounds of dirt. Lots of mounds of dirt in this movie. Lots of dirt. And then he plunges his foot in the in the puddle, and he like kind of gets scared by a dog barking when he's walking on the train tracks. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a because he's reacting silently and it's black and white and he does these big like sort of over the top movements. I think it is very sort of evocative of that silent film era and that that broad vaudevillian comedy kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they they um him and Lynch uh, they they worked through they did a lot of rehearsing. I mean they had five years so they had the time, but uh <laughs> they they like rehearsed every like every second of movement before they put it on. Lynch loves to rehearse. I mean yeah. you watch those Twin Peaks special features and you see him going going wild mm. with the rehearsals. 
Yeah. So, you know, you get this. I also really love the sense of scale mm. that David creates when he's passing in front of all those windows and he's like super tiny. The building just feels immense. Yeah. And it almost sort of feels like Metropolis kind of mm. to me. Like it feels like we're in that sort of like sci-fi dystopia kind of thing. And that that sort of steampunk I, I guess is as good of a term as any to sort of refer to it. Dave is a bit of a steampunk, isn't he? He's a little steampunk he sure in a big technological world. Yeah. I think that that is sort of what's, what gets pulled into stuff like Tetsuo. You know, mm-hmm. when, when Jack Nance later shows up at Mary's house and there's like just random like metal rods sticking out of the ground. Yeah. There, there's in, um, in when he's going to Mary's house, uh, there's, there's steam coming out of every corner, and even when they're inside of Mary's house, there's there's pipes all over. Her dad is a plumber, and that that actually reminded me a little bit of Brazil with all the like ducts sure. and then pipes going around. Another sort of industrial dystopia, though. Yeah, yeah, and the Good representation for Philly. I'm telling you, man. And the it, we're going by a lot of like electric power plants and uh, a lot of a lot of metal and brick and um, the lights flickering on and off and and we see this again and again in Lynch with the electricity and sure. uh, flickering lights being like a it it puts us in that uneasy space and uh, a portent of things to come yeah and, uh, usually not good things. Yeah, he finally makes it to his apartment building. This is also run down and dingy, but gosh dang, does the st- the shot of him standing in front of the elevator looks good? I mean, it's really really great. This super wide, you know, it's got the black and white chevron pattern floor, which we of yeah. course never see again in Lynch's work. No red room or black lodge or anything. No. Yeah, I was gonna say about the scale too. Is like I feel like in this movie we're either treated to like super close ups uh, where we see like just like very dramatic expressions or like the the characters kind of dwarfed by their surroundings like uh in that first shot where we're finished with the the planet superimposed with him and the sperm worm flying around um we got him right up in front of us and then he goes into that tunnel and he becomes so tiny and yeah dwarfed by the landscape i think it also helps to establish a sense of claustrophobia when he's stuck in the apartment Mm -hmm. you know that the outside is so huge and and inside he's stuck in this tiny little cage basically great physical humor with the with the elevator taking taking so (laughs) long and yeah, he's just like waiting and he's so tiny in that little elevator and it's like taking yeah. forever. Nothing's working out for this guy. No, it certainly isn't. The beautiful girl across the hall stops him as he opens the door to his apartment and says a girl named Mary has called and invited him to dinner with her family. We get a look inside his apartment, which, like we said, just has random piles of dirt and twigs and stuff <laughs> inside. Everything is kind of just off, which is something that really appeals to me about body horror, that sort of feeling of humanity like twisted, you know, and mm-hmm. This gives me that same kind of feeling. This seems to be like a normal apartment, except for, oh, there's piles of dirt, and there's a bowl of water in the drawer, and there's these torn up photos and a framed picture of the nuclear tests, and it's normal until you really take it in. Call that the Lynch specialty, baby. Mm -hmm. And then that that, uh, pile of dirt with the uh, bony uh, plant coming out of it on his bedside table. it. The Charlie Brown tree. It could almost be if you stick a chewed up piece of gum on the end, you could have just have the evolution of the arm right there. The arm. Yeah. <laughs> and then something I don't think we see in the movie, but one thing that <laughs> I think Catherine Coulson was having, 
describing being asked to do was to fill a drawer full of pudding and peas. (laughs) (laughs) This guy just loves combining. He's so rando. (laughs) Lynch, you're so rando. (laughs) And we also see that tellingly Henry's window stares out at a blank brick wall. Right. I think that this sort of like dead end that he feels like he's in is really sort of brought to light by that. And that little picture of the nuclear explosion is just a, it's a, it's a good example of just like the, uh, America. Yeah. The, the American like, uh, failed experiment. just like in enshrined in this little room. Yeah. That David Lynch lived in. And he, he's actually describes being, uh, very comfortable in there. He knows how to create an environment that he, that he likes to be. (laughs) I'm honestly not surprised that he enjoyed spending time there, but (laughs) Henry heads to Mary's house. It's spooky as hell. It's all shadowy. Like we said, there are these weird metal rods sticking out of the ground. She immediately jumps on him and says that he's late. She's staring Mm -hmm. out the window on the door, which is very funny when you see her face just kind of in the corner there. Mm -hmm. And things are really awkward with her mother. But I want to point out two things as well. First is the physical distance between Mary and Henry, which is very clearly sort of like embodying the emotional gap between them but second is the mother dog feeding the puppies which it's this really aggressive noise that sounds more like rats yeah it sounds like a swarm of rats i thought it was in willard another runner-up i didn't get a chance to rewatch. i thought maybe Eraserhead is is a stronger pick than crispin glover and willard but i love that movie and i told him he loved it when i went to his movie and he he's proud of it as well Unlike back Hell to yeah. the future. And there's all, there's all these dogs, you know, there, it's a whole heap of them fighting to get this, the chance at the same resource. It's a lot of puppies. Yeah. And, you know, the mother looks like she's getting sort of overwhelmed by them. And uh, she's a nice puppy, though. I mean, she's a nice sure, Look, they're great looking dogs. Yeah. Um, but the sound you know, design makes no. them horrific. Like, I, it, yeah. it, 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 that's like, it shows how powerful the, the sound is. Yeah. And so Mary's dad enters and describes their dinner as man-made chickens smaller than his fist, which <laughs> terrifying description. To he be says, honest. but they're and new. They sure are new. Yeah. When Henry is asked to carve, the chicken animates and gushes blood mm-hmm. uh, while when he cuts into it. And the mother seems very excited by this. Mm. And she and Mary run off into the kitchen. And when she reemerges, she pulls Henry aside while Mary cries there. And... The power surges during their conversation, which leaves them in shadows, uh, while the mom pressures Henry, asking over and over again if he and Mary had sex, and then she starts smooching him herself. Yeah, there's no and- distance between these two. He's he's backed into a shadowy corner. He's like uh, so like uh, embarrassed to be asked about sex at all. This yeah. I talked about being repressed earlier, and this guy is seriously repressed. I, I'm <laughs> I'm not surprised that we saw more meta- metaphorical conception because uh, I can only imagine how painful it would have been if we had seen that on camera. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, in a panic, Henry calls Mary over, and the two of them explain that the other day Mary had a premature baby, although they're not sure it is a baby. And Henry is the dad, so they got to get married. And Henry's nose starts to bleed at this news. Mm -hmm. It fades to black. And when we come back, we're immediately greeted by this monstrous baby, swaddled completely except for its face, which is, I mean, it's almost like indescribable. Like, it's, it's like a damn old one to me. I just start babbling about it being like smooth and weird nose and protruding. 
So, George, you, you skipped grandma. You didn't mention grandma. At all. I didn't mention grandma. I, you know, I was trying. I was trying to keep things moving a little bit. Grandma's there. She's I just in a, a catatonic mention, state. She reminded me a little bit of grandpa in Texas Chainsaw One or Two, when sure. she the the mom puts the uh, spoons in her hands and moves them for her. It's much like the, the hammer that uh, we yeah. can move on from grandma. But I wanted to. No, move. It, it it is very funny too when she, she the mom does the the salad toss there with uh, with the grandma's hands so that she's involved in helping as well um and, th- and i think that is actually a really good connection point i think it does feel a lot like grandpa using the hammer there baby time the baby won't eat despite mary literally holding its nose so that it opens its mouth yeah terrible parenting first of all and it cries loudly all the time <laughs> non-stop henry lays down on the bed and he stares aimlessly at the radiator and he sort of has this vision where it lights up suddenly and a stage appears behind it the first of many visions. And mm-hmm. after a sleepless night, Mary can't take it anymore. And she leaves Spencer and the child and she goes back to her parents' house. And I like that as she pulls out her suitcase, her, her face is pressed against the bed. And it does look like the bars of a jail cell because of the prison that they each feel like they're in. And this is mm-hmm. why she's so spitefully saying stuff like, I'll do what I want to do and lashing out and sort of pushing back against this new paradigm that their lives are in. It's completely been reframed. Mm-hmm. Henry, now alone with the kid, tries to take care of it, including jamming a thermometer down its throat. And then in what can only be described as a terrifying jump scare, yes. we learn that this thing is wheezing and covered in sores. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely horrific. Yeah, it's it's like, oh, uh, God, yeah, it's, it's, it is hard to describe what this baby looks like. It's sort of like a baby, a fur, furless baby lamb, maybe, or, or something like that. But it's just covered in like festering sores. It's, it's just awful. And uh, this is another way that I wanted to bring in my experience as a pet care professional. I think like, you know, a baby is a uh, pet, you know, a pet, a, fur, a furless pet and sure, completely dependent on you. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't know how to speak and tell you what's wrong with it. And I've been in a situation where I have to take care of a little animal and something's going wrong, but I don't know exactly what. I don't know. Yeah. Like they're, they're not, uh, they're not eating or they're not, they're not going to the bathroom. They're, they're just like, not and just like that's that's kind of the situation this puts me in i don't know the experience of having a child but this this is like the worst experience a pet care professional could imagine is uh you 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 turn and then you turn back and the pet has (laughs) a thousand little sores on it not ideal he needs a vet visit let's just say that At the very least. Yeah. I do laugh, though, when Henry tries to leave, and every time he opens the door, the baby starts wailing again. That's that's very funny. That actually also reminded me of, like, when I'm dog-sitting and I have to, like, step out of the apartment, and I hear the barking of the dog behind me, and I'm like, is this just going to continue until I come back? (laughs) Or, like, are the neighbors going to complain? Yeah. And it's he's just trapped there with this this kid, and it's... That's exactly it. He, he really is trapped and um, he starts having these visions of, of the stage behind the radiator again. And mm-hmm. instead of curtains pulling away as sort of representative in this dystopia that they're in, these big concrete slabs pull away instead. That is very representative of, you know, David talks very enthusiastically. I think in the Mulholland Drive special features is when he's talking about this with the way that it, the sort of 
pulls away and you enter into another world. And that's why he loves these curtains so much because mm. um, it's like entering the world of the movie. And uh, you know, it's, you're really like throwing yourself into it. And I think that these curtains being concrete and pulling away, that's the world that Henry is in. And so for him to sort of uh, visit this other world where things are, are different and he doesn't have this responsibility, I really like that he takes this trope that he like uh, his uh, not even a trope, but like a director trademark, I guess, of having curtains and, and sort of flipping the script on what it would become this early in the game. We also get uh, the lady in the radiator appears this time. Yes. And she has these big puffy cheeks that, again, feels like just off and ironically has sort of a girl next door look compared to the actual girl next door. Yes. I have a little bit on her. Uh, she wasn't in the original script for Eraserhead. He says he was sitting in the food room one day. That's one of the places in there in the stable, uh, <laughs> stable mini mansion. And I drew a picture of the lady in the radiator, but I didn't know where it came from. But it was meaningful to me when I saw it finally drawn. And he he thought she'll go in the in the radiator, but and then it turned out that the radiator that they were using actually had a little compartment where she could go in. Wow! It's just like this magical thinking. It just. Uh, it was an instru- instrument for producing warmth in a room. It made me happy. Like me as Henry say, imagine that he's, he's like the <laughs> protagonist. I don't know. I saw this <laughs> opening to another place. So he ran into the set and he looked at the radiator. This is the only radiator he'd seen with a little chamber with a, it didn't have a stage in it at the time, obviously, but that's. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Yeah. What would you do if you looked at your radiator and there was just a stage? <laughs> I would love it. I would love to watch this lady uh, every night. So it says the lady in the radiator had bad skin. I think she had bad acne as a child and used a lot of pancake makeup to smooth that out. But inside is where the the happiness in her comes from. Her outward appearance is not the thing. And me, I just find that very inspiring and beautiful. Hell yeah. And she is like, she is at first uh sort of a a horrific sight you know cuz she's got these big sort of textured lumpy cheeks yeah but we haven't gotten to her 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 song yet but um no, not she yet. is she's kind of an oasis for henry yeah absolutely and you know as she's moving around the stage the sperm start falling on the stage around <laughs> yeah. her yeah the billies yeah the billies fall she starts stomping on them after they get in the way of her dancing around And, you know, I think that we'll sort of see that not only is she an oasis, but I think that she's very much sort of representative of like she's a manifestation of his subconscious desire to return to normal, to kill the kid, basically, and Mm. and get rid of this constraint that's been placed upon him. Mm hmm. Mary finally returns, but their relationship is in shambles. You know, they're petty towards each other. Every little thing annoys Henry about her now. She's hogging the bed. Yep. The sound of rubbing her eyes is oh my god, incredibly There's loud. There's so many life. like, uh, yeah, she she is like constantly itching herself way back in when we first meet her, clamping her then, jaws, yeah, chomping away. I'm curious if you think that this is like a, a vision or a dream or not, because he starts pulling the like sperm creatures, the billies out of Mary again. And to me, I think that this is kind of the same as when he's viewing like the woman in the radiator stepping on them. I think that he's asleep 
and he's fantasizing about sort of undoing it all. Right. Yeah. You don't, you don't totally know when we're, there's one like very clear dream sequence in this movie, but there's a, there's a, we're, there's a lot of kind of shifting in, in and out of, you know, it's, there's a lot of dream imagery. And that's, you know, that's, that's something that I love about uncle Dave. Definitely. And the beautiful girl across the hall comes over because she locked herself out and Henry lock, he covers the baby's mouth. So it stops crying. Oh yeah. We're, 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 we're fully in, in, in dream mode then. But, um, I just, uh, wanted to shout out one thing about Mary and this is crazy. I don't, I don't, she says this, the, the actress, uh, Charlotte Stewart, that before they would shoot, uh, he put an ear infection in her ear every day. So she would just be uncomfortable. I don't know uh, how you do that. And like that put an ear infect. It was just <sighs> weird. She said that I'm not making this up, yeah. but like, yeah, these actors seem like they were suffering slightly. <laughs> oh, and, uh, Jack, what is Jack Fisk who plays the man in the planet that makeup hurt him a lot i'll find the passage about that let's go on all right well i also just want to say that the lighting is very dark in this scene and i don't think that that's an accident oh Um, sorry just a second jack was in a lot of pain because of the body and face makeup i put on him in that scene it took three days for him to get back to normal damn rough yeah suffer for your art i guess yeah or david's art not his (laughs) (laughs) well it's still his yeah it's it's a collaborative art form yeah the beautiful girl across the hall and Henry smooch and ostensibly mm-hmm. have sex, but the bed has become a crater filled with liquid that they sink into. And the girl in the radiator sings heaven. And she repeats that everything is fine. This is much more representative of everything. the life that Henry used to have. And this is sort of him reaching out to get a, a, a taste of that life that he used to have. This is why he covers up the baby's mouth. This is why he has uh, extra relation. Uh, ex- I guess they're married at this point, an extramarital affair. And, uh, and you know, it, the, this manifestation of his desire to kill the kid just says, this is fine. Everything is fine. We need to get back to the way things were. Mm-hmm. After this encounter, Henry dreams again. And this is the very vivid dream sequence. And this time his head flies off because from underneath a head that looks like the child's pops up. And I think that this is sort of very much indicating that he sees his own flaws and he's, he's worried about passing them on to the kid. I think that this is something that a lot of people worry about when they think about children in the future. And that's, do I deserve to pass on my genes when I have, you know, X, Y, and Z flaws. And and they're so magnified when you look in the mirror. And, uh, you know, I think that that's very much what's happening in this movie as well is that, you know, he sees himself sort of as a monster who's failed because of his position in this world. And uh, he's worried about that being the case for his child as well. Mm -hmm. The decapitated head sinks into a pool of blood and falls from the sky and it crashes and splits in the street. And a kid brings it to a factory where it's made into pencil erasers tested and brushed to the side, uh, dissipating into the air. And I think that this is very much not only do I think that he's a worker, like you said, that this is a very blue collar protagonist. I think that he's this this world that he lives in and the child now, this is trying to say that it's like taking pretty much everything he has to offer, that he feels completely worn away by the world that they live in and by having this child draining him. Yeah, and he's he's used up and fed into a machine. You know, it's kind of like the 
industrial machine of you know the factory that works at and like the larger you know societal machine sure i just want to shout out the uh boss at the pencil factory is wearing two ties like uncle dave himself he he passed on his fashion to his to his characters (laughs) there you go like we said a very personal movie (laughs) (laughs) henry knocks at the door of the beautiful woman across the hall but she's not there and the baby laughs at him. Oh God, the baby laughing. I genuinely find the laugh to be pretty endearing. Oh, I, okay. I think that this is, this is the moment where I am like, all right, kid, <laughs> you're okay. He's got his moments. He's kind of cute. I, his, his little bundle, uh, is, is, uh, some t- from afar. It, it's, uh, uh, it's endearing, but the, I don't know, George, the laughing rem- remind me a little bit of evil dead Two. the deer, uh, you know, he's, he's, <laughs> He's at his breaking point, and this this thing starts cracking up at him. And uh, it's true, but it has a very deep voice, unlike the deer, where it's like, hey. <laughs> yeah, sure. I I think it's very very funny. And um, he finally hears the return of the beautiful woman across the hall, and he goes to see her, but she's with another man, and he turns into the the baby head while right. he's standing in this doorway, which is an image that I just love i think that this picture of him standing there with the baby head is just spectacular it's so funny it's it's very evocative it, may, it shows that he feels like a, a monster basically yeah and and it's also when when his uh head pops off earlier when he's kind of on stage with the with the lady first the head is kind of blasted off with like a uh some flesh of a phallus of some kind and then that retreats and then the baby's head pops out of there and then this is a different different scene in the dream yeah his reaction to the to the sexy neighbor with a with a different man it, it, it just like this screaming silent screaming baby face like yeah it really yeah it shows that he's so unready for fatherhood that he's he is he is baby yeah um and he returns to his room alone again except for the baby mm-hmm. and so he he's finally had enough and he grabs some scissors and he starts to cut into the swaddling that the baby has been in this entire time and uh, that starts the baby crying off and you're sort of like wondering why this might be the case um, until he finishes, and it turns out that was holding in his guts. Mm. Yeah, that's it's just up. it is a fucking mess in there. It is just <laughs> a nasty, goopy mess. There's like some heaving. I want to say their lungs or heart. So, it swells up. Those look real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So he punctures one of the lungs, and it just blood everywhere. This baby dies horribly yeah, the, f- the foam gets everywhere and then its neck becomes a long noodle like this this like end scene for this like for this creature that i mean sorry this beautiful baby boy spike is, we it, hardly knew you spike ripped yeah, to a real one it it reminds me of uh it, both of the fr- evil dead one and two kind of have like a claymation wild sure. like creature transformation that they leave to the end and this this uh baby's neck becoming this long noodle and then its head becomes big and it's appearing all over in the strobing uh room yeah the power is surging and the droning is intensifying and it it becomes it, it the head grows to basically the size of the room this is it having taken over henry's whole life you know mm-hmm. and it becomes the planet from earlier which explodes as Henry stands in shock in the middle of a cloud of racer dust. That's the iconic shot from the poster. Oh yeah, it's a, it looks incredible as well. Well mm-hmm. deserved that it's it's the iconic shot. But 
the man in the planet is struggling with his levers, which are now emitting sparks. And Henry and the lady in the radiator hug um, as the shadows that have been so prevalent this whole time are replaced by a bright white light. And again, I like I said, I think that she's been this manifestation of him wanting to kill the kid. And this is him being assured that he did the right thing and it will all go back to normal. You know, he's sort of had this like Zen like passivity this entire time trying to let things wash over him. But he gets erased away and erased away until finally he's broken and he commits this act of killing his son. And um, this whole thing is just, such, it's like, it's so personal while still also being kind of like a parody of family life mm-hmm. and having this really incredible um, surrealist nature. And so uh, Andy, we've now reached the part of the show where we sum up, why this is the best horror movie ever made. You know, you listed so many incredible horror movies today, and we talked a little bit about what makes them all so great. And so I think that you've really set yourself up to have to really bring the heat on this one, because I agree that this is the best horror movie ever made, but it's up against some stiff competition. So um, why don't you go ahead and start things off with a summary of why you think it's so good? Well, so I, I think uh, I'll, I'll start off with uh, Uncle Dave's own words about his own work. Sure. After, you know, you always have mixed feelings after you create something and it had mixed reactions. Uh, famously, the Variety Review said, Eraserhead is a sickening bad taste exercise made by David Lynch under the auspices of the American Film Institute. Like a lot of AFI efforts, this pick has good tech values, particularly the inventive sound mixing, but little substance or subtlety. I say, you know, who needs uh, subtlety, at least, but he was able to get some distance from it, and he was able to relax and see it. After the film was over, he said, it's a perfect film. So... (laughs) I respect uh, Lynch so much as a as an artist, and uh, maybe not as a animal 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 rights. Well, we don't know what he's up to over there. But um, this movie just uh, plunges you so thoroughly into a disturbed psyche and the uncomfortable feeling. And when it comes to, I, I can enjoy all kinds of horror movies like it doesn't it doesn't have to be body horror it doesn't have to be something that uh, affects me psychologically but i think the ones that i really remember and the ones that hit me in my core are ones like this that really put you inside of the protagonist's perspective and make you a little uncomfortable and i am you know i don't want to i don't want to sound like uh too much of a fuck boy or anything, but I, I'm I'm <laughs> not ready to have kids. And I'm 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 pretty confident there are none, no little at prats running around. But seeing see, having to take care of a baby like that is, like I said, the ultimate nightmare of a pet care professional. I I am happy that my my new baby girl Pandora has not sprouted a thousand. Uh, <laughs> festering pustules and uh i yeah knock on wood but i love this movie so much and and it it uh is not a movie that i would recommend to everybody for how truly horrific i find it and i was talking over i i do a a movie club with my sister and my brother-in-law and i talked to them about choosing my movie for this and i was thinking i was saying i think it's going to be a racer head and i was 
one one is that they were not crazy about the more uh, we we did Twin Peaks together too, and they were not as crazy about some of the more avant-garde Twin Peaks: The Return episode eight is like a lot of Twin Peaks uh, fans' favorite, but they were like, this is a little bit. Uh, they were not, it was not their comfort zone, let's say. And I would love to be an uncle, and I don't want them. Uh, I, I'm not going to recommend a movie where this is what <laughs> happens to a young couple with their new baby boy. So I just think it's like it could not be more effective for putting you in a horrific mindset. And for that me- reason and more, Eraserhead is the number one horror film of all time. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that Eraserhead is the best horror movie ever made <laughs> because I think that First of all, it looks absolutely spectacular. I think that uh, even just on its technical merits, this movie is incredible. I think that Jack Nance is bringing incredible comedy chops and incredible pathos as well in the dramatic moments. And I think that as much as David Lynch is bringing himself to it, I think that Jack Nance's contributions can't really be overstated either. Mm -hmm. But that does bring us to David and... I think that for David Lynch to exist so thoroughly out of people's comfort zones and to be so confident in his ability to communicate themes or not even themes, but just the moods and everything that he is trying to communicate, so much of that passion and that confidence, I think, really exudes off the screen. I think that this is, it tells you exactly what it's here to say. I think that the reason that it is able to affect people so profoundly and has such a great message about responsibility, which is terrifying Mm. is because it, um, it feels very personal, Mm -hmm. even though it does have these surreal moments. And even though everything is kind of weird, it still is very recognizable as sort of this allegory for family and, and that feeling of fear of responsibility. And, for it to happen on or for the fact that it happened at all is a miracle, you know, <laughs> the, that, that it, it, they had to work so hard to get the money together and everything. And this is the beginning of one of my favorite directors careers in, in feature length filmmaking and without its success as a cult film, I don't think that we get the career path that David Lynch has had. And I think that would be a great tragedy. Mm-hmm. And f- for this to really have been the thing that I think sets him on this path, uh, I think that it, it, that's what makes this the best horror movie ever made to me. Phew. I'm glad you agree with me, George, or else I was about to erase your head. Oh, shit. <laughs> the joke's so nice we used it twice. Um, AT, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. This was an absolute joy. And uh, please, why don't you tell the people where they can check out your work, which I love and highly endorse. Thank you. Uh, so I, you can follow me on Instagram at AT Pratt, Twitter at uh, Cartoon Tycoon. ATPratt.StoreEnvy.com has all of my comics and zines. You, uh, you may say, uh, Andy, you, you haven't, uh, released a comic in a year. You are, you're taking, you're taking too long and, uh, you, you just clam down. I have, uh, there's many, many works there that you have never seen. And, uh, 
2020, the 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 COVID time was not a great for comic book fe- great time for comic book festivals, which I usually use to prepare new work for. Why am I making all these excuses? All, all I want to say is that 2021 is going to be my year, and I have big things yeah. coming at you, uh, big comic projects in the works. So yeah, if you want to uh, read my stuff, I would appreciate it, and you can check out my stuff. Do it. Yeah. Uh, cut out the pause. Through, no, I was this just, I'm like frantically looking, uh, for, for like more, uh, details for my little book. And, uh, I just, yeah, I, I love the movie. So, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm, thank you for having me on. I just hope that I did uncle Dave justice. Uh, yeah, I, I think we did. And, um, if you want to listen to me on Twitter, that's little horror PHL that username follows me pretty much everywhere. So you can find me wherever it's also the Patreon if you want to get all kinds of great bonus episodes and stuff, like I said, there's an episode about begotten by E L I S marriage, uh, which takes a lot of influence from this. There's also a, a new episode about Solaris up on the mm. Patreon, which this is one of the things I am like most proud of having done. I think this episode is really great. And, you know, I know that it sucks when you can't afford to get content and when things go behind the paywall. So if you really, if you, I want people to hear this. So if you really can't swing the Patreon, then uh, message me, I guess somewhere and I'll, uh, I'll make sure that you can get a copy of this thing. But um, I would really appreciate it if you did join the Patreon. And uh, I think that it's worth paying for. I think that it's really good. I think that uh, a lot of work goes into this show. And so if you enjoy it, um, you know, it would be great if you could uh, throw me a couple bucks every month and that's a uh, patreon.com forward slash little horror PHL. That's enough. I won't even ask you to rate and review this week because of that long spiel about the Patreon. Everyone needs to rate and <laughs> review George. I, I, I will tell them if you don't and uh, sign wow, up for the Patreon as well. That. George is a good man. And uh, also, also I uh, just want to uh, restate that I may not have released an, a new uh, comic recently, but I have, taking in a new cat and that's all thanks to you george and uh thank you so much yes my pleasure i love to i love that uh pando gets a new uh a new nice home and that uh, she gets to be with someone who uh, clearly loves her very much and uh cats deserve that and uh folks if you could see the video you would have seen appearances by both of my cats <laughs> who uh who popped in it's true that's it we're uh, we're at the end I don't, uh, that's it for me i have some parting words george Oop. Or oh, okay. Let us, us let us say Uncle Dave does. We wish you peace and happiness and long live Eraserhead. Thanks a million. There we go. Who could say it better than that? Peace and happiness, George. Bye, everyone. <laughs>